The world is filled with wonders and mysteries that can delight us in our travels. The folks at Atlas Obscura have assembled a growing cabinet of curiosities of unusual places to explore. All of us kind of live in one giant wonder together now, and we can share the wonders both near and far. It's a constant battle to keep from losing important heritage sites around the world. The World Monuments Fund has just released their latest list to highlight the sites that need a little help to survive. We really aim with our work to, on one hand, make sure these places continue to exist, but on the other, also try to enrich people's lives. You might also find amazing places where you least expect them. We'll look at the works of prehistoric mound builders along Ohio's ancient trail. Octagons and squares and circles connected by lines. It's an odd sort of set of earthenworks there. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. There's so many interesting places you can visit around the world as changing pandemic protocols make travel possible again. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll check with two organizations that are dedicated to preserving the sense of wonder and astonishment you can find at many of the world's one-of-a-kind sites. Dylan Thuris returns in a bit to add to the long list of quirky places that the folks at Atlas Obscura have been compiling with a little help from their fans. The World Monuments Fund takes nominations of noteworthy sites around the world that we're in danger of losing. Every two years, they announce a new list to raise the profile of heritage sites that deserve to be preserved. Coming up, Jonathan Bell updates us on what they've added to their latest list. These are the places of extraordinary cultural significance where factors like natural and man-made disasters and even over-tourism could make them disappear. Let's start the hour looking at four extraordinary historic sites in Ohio, ancient sites that offer a hint of life in North America, made back when the ancient Greeks and Romans and Egyptians were building their monuments. Lori Erickson is an Episcopal clergywoman from Iowa who often visits and writes about significant spiritual sites around the world. She joins us now to follow Ohio's ancient trail of mound builders' sites. You'll find them just outside of Cincinnati and Columbus, plus the largest prehistoric effigy mound in the world, the Serpent Mound in rural Adams County. Lori, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Lori, there's actually a culture right here in our country that goes back 15, 1800 years, the Hopewell culture. Tell us who they were. Well, in some ways, we don't know a lot about them because we have no written records. Uh, the oral tradition is its too far in the past to have a living oral tradition. But what we do have are these remarkable earthenworks that were created by this culture. So they're named the Hopewell culture uh, after the name of the farmer who owned the land where one of these first mounds was excavated on. But otherwise, Hopewell doesn't have any connection mm. with what the people themselves called their, their culture. There are four main sites on the ancient Ohio Trail. There are thousands of mound sites, but the, the four main ones are um, Newark, uh, which is the largest set of geometric earthworks in the world. It's near Columbus, Ohio. And if you look at an aerial map, it looks almost like a semiconductor map. You know, mm. there are octagons and squares and circles connected by lines. It's a, it's a it's an odd sort of set of, of earthenworks there. Um, Mound City is another area, maybe um, about a half hour drive or so away. That was a necropolis, a burial place. It looks like giant anthills spread out over a couple of football fields. Fort Ancient is the third one. 
It was the largest hilltop enclosure in North America. It's on a beautiful setting overlooking a river. And it's a puzzle because there were in this hilltop enclosure, there were 70 different openings. And so it clearly wasn't meant for defensive purposes because Mm. you wouldn't have that many openings in it. Mm. So it was used for some kind of ceremony. And it's huge. And then the fourth one is the one that is most impressive that captures people's imaginations in all sorts of ways. It's the the Great Serpent Mound. Uh, It is the largest effigy mound in the world. It's a huge serpent, a quarter mile in length. Each of the curves are about three feet high. Originally, they would have been even higher than that. The Great Serpent Mound is a little bit of an anomaly. It probably wasn't Hopewell. It was built either before or after um, but it's it's connected to this ancient Ohio Trail, and it is a really impressive spot. Now, this faces the setting sun, I understand, just like, you yes. know, all of the uh-huh. stone circles and, and these remnants of civilizations in, in Europe mm-hmm. and in England, and they all seem to be lined up with the stars and the rising setting sun on summer solstice, and there's a connection there, isn't there? Well, it doesn't. It, it it seems like it's too much of a coincidence that the the mouth of the serpent would face the setting sun on the solstice. Um, yeah. Another interesting quirk of this site is that deep below the serpent is the remains of a, a meteor crater. Um, the meteor, big meteor, struck the area about three hundred million years ago, and it twisted the rock there in ways that it's not apparent from the surface. But there are. If you have a compass and you're walking around the Great Serpent, it does weird things. And it has to do with, uh, you know, there are geological explanations for that. But I think it's interesting to speculate on the fact that the people, perhaps, who were, who built the Great Serpent effigy realized that there were a variety of reasons why this place was different. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lori Erickson. Lori's book, or her latest book of several, is The Soul of the Family Tree, Ancestors, Stories, and the Spirits We Inherit. And Laurie sort of specializes in weaving in an appetite for understanding her ancestors and her genealogy with travel. And we can all learn more about our own heritage when we travel thoughtfully. And we're talking about the ancient Ohio Trail, the Hopewell culture. Uh, Laurie, how does this relate to uh, indigenous Americans that we think of, you know, uh, tribes that that we all know? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is this Hopewell culture as mysterious to them as as even more so than they are to us? Well, I think the the Shawnee in particular claim an um, ancestral connection to these sites uh, and that it almost certainly is, is their ancestors who were there. Um, because of the tremendous disruptions in Native American culture, the diseases and um, you know all the terrible things that happened to to various tribal groups that it's not a direct connection anymore, but there is a reclaiming of that heritage. Mm. And the park service in Ohio is working really hard to collaborate with the native peoples um, to try to to bring to life the stories, um, the the older traditions. Uh, as much as they can. I would think it's a bit of a challenge, especially with the Native American interest in making sure these are respected as holy sites. Some of them are sites that are holy to golfers or uh, developers (laughs) uh, more than holy to Native American heritage. I would imagine that's a bit of a discussion in Ohio. Well, it is. And I think it's, it's always hard when you have sacred sites, indigenous sites that are 
in the midst of modern development. And so you mm-hmm. mentioned the, the the Mound Builders Country Club. It contains part of the Newark Earthenworks, and there there are negotiations underway to take it back under the control of the the State uh, Historical Society. I think another another thing that happens at the Great Serpent Mound it's become it's become a center for New Age pilgrims mm-hmm. and for people who you know in, in various ways connect with nature spirituality. And so there's somewhat of a delicate dance relating to that. It's a public place. It's a spiritual place. It's a Native American place. And so there are a lot of different stories that come together there. Mm-hmm. But I think as long as people come with a sense of respect and mm-hmm. openness that that can be a good thing. You know, in part, I, what I like about these places is that the story is so open. You know, there's not one set, there's not a book about it. There's not a one particular set of dogma or rules about it. Instead, there's mystery at the heart of it. Mm. And I think that people respond to that, the power of the mystery. Is there, if somebody wants to visit, I, I, I would think it'd be nice to have some kind of a museum where you might have a few artifacts and some sort of a sense of what was the technology and and what do we know about these uh, people. Uh, Is there a museum and are there artifacts and and what's that like? Yes, there are are some. Uh, In Columbus, Ohio, um, called the History Connection Museum, that would be the best place to go. At Fort Ancient, they have quite a nice museum there that has some of the artifacts and some replica artifacts. Um, it's in the works that these sites are going to be named uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Uh, they're on the short list for that. And if and when that happens, I think that's going to raise the profile of these these places tremendously. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people just don't realize how significant they are. They really are the American Stonehenge or the American Pyramids. And unfortunately, because they were built of earth, They've sunk down a lot. You know, you have mm-hmm. to use some imagination with them. But the amount of work, the the uh, sophistication, the lunar alignments, the astronomical alignments, all of those indicate an incredibly sophisticated culture that built these places. Fascinating. Lori Erickson is joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She explores Ohio's ancient trail of mound builders sites on her website, spiritualtravels.info. She also writes about her genealogical research in Norway in her book, The Soul of the Family Tree, Ancestors, Stories, and the Spirits We Inherit. Lori, when we think of this ancient Ohio trail, uh, you can't help but wonder what was the technology of the age and how did they build this stuff? I mean, uh, when we go to that museum, what kind of artifacts will we see? What what physical uh, remnants are there from the Hopewell people? Well, if you go to the museum, you'll see artifacts that are made of mica and copper and seashells and obsidian that were traded throughout North America, which indicates that um, it was a powerful culture that had connections across the continent. But the technology itself used to build these mounds was very simple. They had probably pointed sticks, they had hose made out of clamshells, and they had woven baskets, and they had human labor. But then the other part of that, uh, the, the process that I think is really important to realize is that this was not a hierarchical culture, you know, like when the pyramids were built, for example, there was a pharaoh who was telling people what to do. But instead, these cultures, these early Hopewell cultures were primarily hunter-gatherers. They did some limited agriculture, but primarily they lived in small groups um, without a, a big social structure, you know, with with the elite living in a wealthy places and the rest of people living in, in you know in in pretty minimal circumstances. So whatever whatever the motivation was, it almost certainly was done in a voluntary fashion. Hmm. 
And they also almost certainly didn't live at these places. And so they were used for ceremonial purposes. Uh, So probably people came together from a considerable distance to work on the earthen works. And then they'd have ceremonies and then they would go away. And so... um, you know, there there's real differences between some of the, these monuments and, say, the Central American monuments that mm-hmm. were built essentially by slave labor um, and in Europe as well. That is so important that we're able to just remember that we don't need to leave our country to find distant history. I mean, I'm so used to thinking, oh, we've got history here a couple centuries ago, but we're talking 15, 1800 years ago. Uh, remnants Mm -hmm. of uh, Mm -hmm. communities that worked together. And it's Mm -hmm. a blessing to be able to see it. And what we need to do is remember the ancient Ohio Trail. Lori Erickson, thank you so much for joining us. And I've got um, some interesting travels ahead of me right here in our own country. Thank you for having me, Rick. We have more web links to Lori Erickson's work with today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, find out what are the latest places the World Monuments Fund has put on their biannual watch as we learn about endangered heritage sites around the world. And a little later, Atlas Obscura adds to their collection of wacky and wonderful places as their readers nominate more sites and experiences to explore. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Since its inception, the biannual list of endangered sites of the World Monuments Fund has identified over 800 heritage sites around the world in urgent need of preservation, and it's led the way in safeguarding some of the world's most treasured places. The 25 architectural and cultural sites on the 2022 list span over 13,000 years of history and illustrate some of today's most pressing global challenges. Jonathan Bell is the Vice President of Programs at the World Monuments Fund. And he joins us today from New York City to talk about the sites on the 2022 watch and the threats that they face. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. It's great to be here. Yeah. So now uh, the World Monuments Fund has just announced its list for 2022 of 25 sites that they're most um, excited about preserving and raising awareness of. What is your goal at the World Monuments Fund and and, and the mission? Well, our mission at the World Monuments Fund is basically to safeguard the world's most treasured places. So these are heritage places that people hold dear. They have associated themselves with them. They identify themselves by them. And they really think of them as places that are important to who they are. And so we really aim with our work to, on one hand, make sure these places continue to exist, but on the other, also try to enrich people's lives. When you think about places that are worth saving... Is that from a first-world perspective or from a local perspective? That's a great question, Rick. So important because it is hard to, to talk about saving a place or coming in and providing help without having this kind of, you know, colonial perspective. And we want to work with local communities and respond to the needs that they have identified. And that's something that's really unique about the watch because... The process is that anyone can send in a nomination. It can be an individual, uh, it can be a government entity, or a local community-based organization. So we really respond to what we hear from people on the ground about the places they hold dear. you got 25 um, sites this year. Give me just a smattering, three or four examples that are really coming up in a grassroots way from the communities, because we're talking about 
Burkina Faso, and we're talking about Indonesia, and we're talking about Pakistan, some very riddled with crisis parts of the world. I mean, there's one in Beirut and Lebanon. Uh, What are some examples where you've heard an outcry from people in the midst of that community that say, we need help to protect our heritage? Absolutely. And, you know, a number of the ones you mentioned are exactly that. You mentioned Beirut, for instance, and this is really coming from a local community-based organization trying to help rebuild the city after that horrible blast that happened in uh, 2020 that really leveled a large part of the city and a number of historic buildings in particular. Hmm. So that's one example. Uh, Another great example, I think, is a site we have in Nepal. And uh, really, it's not a site. It's a whole network of water fountains that have been the traditional provision points of water for people living across the Kathmandu Valley for at least a thousand years. And that's another nomination that came from the local community who sees these as important and also sees them as a great way to ensure that the local community has access, reliable access to clean water. Now, you know, when I think of those two places, they're they're so vivid to me because I read your report and I looked at the photographs. Uh, Another one that really grabbed me was the main square in Benghazi in Libya. It almost looks like, well, it's after a war. And there's one riddled with bullets, statue in the middle, and then there's a bunch of bombed-out buildings all around. Uh, That must kind of grab your heart also. I think, Rick, you you kind of hit the nail on the head there with, you know, these images clearly showing the signs of of war and conflict. And the ask here, uh, the, the nomination is really for the public square. You know, this was a very important public square historically in Benghazi. And now there's not really any access to it because it's in such disarray. But if we can rehabilitate one small piece of it, it's a wonderful way to bring the community back and for it to serve as a catalyst for recovery. And that's a key concept that we have always held dear, this idea that after crisis, conflict or or natural disaster, it's really important to Uh, use heritage places as anchors to try to help bring about that recovery and bring communities back and make them feel safe and comfortable. And in fact, Jonathan, just hearing you talk about that kind of allays my concern a little bit that, hey, wait a minute, these people are hungry and you're talking about making a museum. Of course, I love museums and I love uh, the heritage and all that, but shouldn't you be giving them an economy first? But maybe you can make a pragmatic case for helping develop these you know, bombed out site in Benghazi or Beirut, that it gives these communities pride and then they are more likely to have the stability as well as the economic base for a a successful society. Rick, you know, for, for me and I think for all of us at World Monuments Fund, heritage is really about people. These places are important because people see them as important. They identify with them, they value them. And so, if we're really trying to put back together people's lives, um, those that have been really horribly impacted by by just disaster and crisis, it's important to have that place to kind of, you know, hang your hat on. That yeah. This reminds you, Ooh, oh, this is my home. I like that. It's sort of a metaphor, just a place to hang your cultural hat on. And, and every society deserves that and can use that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about some of the global heritage sites on the 2022 Watch from the World Monuments Fund. Jonathan Bell is the Vice President of Programs at the World Monuments Fund, and he joins us now from New York to talk about these sites and the threats that they face. And you can read more about the 2022 list on their website, wmf.org. Jonathan, I'm, I'm just curious, though, 
do locals in war-torn and economically, you know, disastrous corners, do the locals really have the bandwidth to care about this? Or, or is that something that is a challenge also? You know, I would say in our experience, uh, it's definitely the case that communities care about their heritage. Now, of course, if there's an immense tragedy that's just happened, you know, on the ground, people need to kind of get their bearings and, and figure out what next steps are. But when we're talking about ways of life and, you know, really long periods of time where people see certain traditions slipping away that they want to recapture, they're very eager to see that happen. And we can't forget, you've brought up uh, economics a few times, and it's so important. And there's an economic value to all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. in, with many of the sites that we work on, many of the communities we work with, we're also bringing in training, capacity building that provides opportunities for employment in the future, whether it be locally or elsewhere. And so that helps, you know, jumpstart or contribute to the success of local economies as well and, and helping people just better their lives. So I understand that that can foster some tourism and, and uh, help the economy that way. But I'm thinking about the there's some of these 12,000-year-old cave paintings in Brazil and they just seem so humble, and I can't imagine there's much tourism potential for that, but it's very important for that that local community. But it's up against encroachment by, you know, big agriculture and ranching, and you could almost say, yeah, it's nice to have the old cave paintings, but it's nicer to have the economy brought by these big ranches and farms. You must have to balance that a certain way, because you got some pretty crass industrial interests that you're up against. And, you know, that's a key part of this whole process. Um, I, I love that you use the word balance because, of course, our focus is on safeguarding these rich cultural places. But we do have to work with uh, with all the neighbors and all the other folks in the area as well as, you know, government authorities and so forth. Uh, but a key thing, particularly with the site you mentioned in Brazil, is the local community has been kind of left on the sidelines. Mm. Nobody's asked them what they want or how they feel about uh, the mm -hmm. tourism that is slowly developing and, you know, if they want to part in it. And so that's where we feel we can come in and we can help. We can help be their champion and provide them with certain tools to, to do this work uh, in a better way. Jonathan, I just love this because I'm so into raising awareness of the pragmatic and practical value of modern, thoughtful uh, economic development aid in the fight against hunger. And in a parallel struggle, we can have very sensitive, balanced approach to cultural aid. And that's kind of what you're doing. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan Bell. He's from the World Monuments Fund. And he's telling us about their 2022 watch, 25 culturally significant sites that are under threat all around the world. We have links to the 2022 list with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. You know, Jonathan, in this list, I was fascinated because I'm so focused on Europe in my work, and this was everywhere from Portugal. You have a couple of sites in the United States. You've got places I've been to, like Tijuacan and outside of Mexico City, and places I couldn't even find on the map. Uh, but it does come into four different areas of concern. Climate change imbalanced tourism, crisis recovery, and underrepresentation. So this is a, a whole different discipline for me to get my brain around. Can you explain uh, these basic categories of challenges to the heritage sites that we're interested in, in protecting? First of all, kind of obvious, climate change. What, what's some examples of what's going on there? Sure. Well, unfortunately, heritage has been a little bit late to be recognized in terms of 
you know, one of the victims, but also in some cases, one of the victors of climate change. So I, I think people can get their heads around the idea that, you know, a building, a historic building that suddenly is facing uh, more intense rainfall, uh, changing temperatures, even flooding is going to have some challenges. And a good example would be on the Maldive Islands, we've got some historic cemetery there that looks very important and it's it's getting soggy with seawater. Exactly. And and that's really at the extreme because Maldives being the lowest lying country in the world, uh, the projections are that within 70 years, mm -hmm. much of the country will be underwater, including that cemetery. So there is even an opportunity to talk about loss and how do we begin to prepare oh, ourselves for loss of loved places. That's a whole different dimension of this uh, issue. Yeah. Now, the, another category of challenge would be imbalanced tourism. What is imbalanced tourism? Well, this is the idea that we often talk about. Tourism is a double-edged sword. On one hand, you need tourism because it brings revenue. Uh, it helps bring attention to places and allows them to get the maintenance they need. But on the flip side, if tourism is poorly managed and you may not have enough or you may have too much, there can really be irreparable harm that, mm -hmm. that takes place. And so this idea is that we have to get tourism in balance. It's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's about how it's managed and controlled and used for the benefit of these places. Yeah, because the site that I was just kind of heartbroken that it's in trouble is Teotihuacan, this amazing pre-Columbian uh, city uh, with these temples and canals and, and pyramids, just a short drive from Mexico City. And there you can work to how to organize the tourism because it's going to have a lot of tourism. So it actually helps the local community. And then in Egypt, you've got a site called Abydos, which it looks like a, a fixer-upper version of Queen Hatshepsut's temple, which everybody goes to when they go down to Luxor. But this is just uh, in the middle of a, a pretty um, hard-scrabbled town there on the, on the banks of the Nile, and it's got great potential in a community that could use some tourism. Yeah, and Rick, you know, those are two great examples because uh, for Teotihuacan, the challenge is not that they don't have enough visitors. I think they have about 75 million a year, mm -hmm. but they're funneled through all one specific pathway, one entrance into this enormous, enormous place. And that means that all the communities that live around the site don't get to benefit from any of that tourism. And, you know, they want to have that opportunity. Abydos that you mentioned in Egypt is really one of the most spectacular sites of ancient Egypt. Mm. I have to say that and get that across. It's just incredible. But it's not on the major kind of tourist route. I, yeah, um, I, so did a, I did a one-hour TV show on Egypt. I thought I knew Egypt pretty well, and I've never heard of Abydos. <laughs> and then I look at your photograph of it, and it goes, whoa, why does nobody Rick, you know gotta about You've got to get this? there. It's, it's mind-blowing. It really is. Um, but as you said, it's in a, a relatively small town, but the town is growing. It's encroaching on it. And because it doesn't have that, that wonderful pressure that comes from tourism— it's not as protected as it could be, and yeah. there are some challenges there that we need to yeah. look at. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning about culturally significant places around the world that are in danger of disappearing. Our guest is the Vice President of Programs for the World Monuments Fund, Dr. Jonathan Bell. The WMF just released their latest watch, which lists 25 at-risk architectural and cultural heritage sites. They include photos of the sites on their website, wmf.org. Now, the next category is crisis recovery, and we've already talked about that really in, in the sense of Beirut and then Benghazi after their, uh, their country just fell apart, and those are important things to recognize. The last category is underrepresentation, 
and you've got a fascinating list of sites in that category. Tell us more, Jonathan, about underrepresentation of heritage sites. Sure. You know, this really has to do with uh, heritage places that just haven't gotten their due. And it may be because they're not listed in some government list that says this is an official historic heritage place and must be protected. It may be just because they're they're not recognized by, you know, certain members of the local community or the community at large. And so it's this is an opportunity to say, hey, you know, we as humans, we all have heritage. Each community has things, places that are important to them. And we want to make sure that we're able to help amplify those voices and say, this is important to me. Okay. And a, a good example of that would be the Garcia Pasture in uh, Texas. It's a pre-Columbian Native American site that's threatened by construction. So somebody's got to get on, on the stick or this is going to be gone forever near the port of Brownsville. And apparently local tribal leaders raised uh, the, the flag and said, we need some help. And the World Monuments Fund heard the call and has put that on the list. Is, is that right? Absolutely. You know, the, the challenge there is that the local tribe is not actually recognized by the U.S. federal government. And so this makes it a bit complicated for them to say these are our tribal lands. So we want to try to help them, you know, get that recognition and therefore then protect these ancestral lands from resource extraction. We've just got a few more minutes. And what I'd like to cover here is... In the last decade, what are a couple of sites that represent triumphs of the WMF in your mind? You know, we've got a few sites uh, from the last cycle that, that come to mind immediately, one of which is this incredible cultural landscape that is enormous. It's about 3,500 square kilometers, so I forget what that is in, in miles, but huge, and it spans the border between Togo and Benin in West Africa. And this landscape is the home of a people known as the Batumariba, who build these huge compounds of earth. And one of the big challenges is that because of a mixture of economic challenges, political challenges, even climate change, they have been losing the knowledge of how to build these and even maintain the ones they had. And we, over the last uh, two years at this point, have been working closely with the communities, with some uh, wonderful organizations, particularly based in Benin, but working on both sides of the border to help bring back the traditional knowledge and help continue to fund uh, and even plant trees. Because even though these are earthen structures, they use wood in the frame. And one of the challenges was they had no access to wood. So we planted 5,000 trees and worked with 25 different communities to bring back this traditional architectural knowledge. Wow. Jonathan Bell, thank you so much for your personal commitment to this and for sharing uh, with all of us a better understanding of the work and the mission of the World Monuments Fund. And again, if people want to learn more about that, they can go to your website, wmf.org. Jonathan, thanks again and best wishes. Thank you so much, Rick. Jonathan Bell tells us more about how the World Monuments Fund finances its work in an extra to today's interview. You can hear it from our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. Most of the sites we explore next won't qualify for any heritage status, but you won't soon forget them. Atlas Obscura recommends places to see and things to do that can add a delightfully peculiar twist to your next trip. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hej, jag är Åsa Danielsson och jag är från Sverige och jag reser med Rick Steves. I'm Åsa from Sweden and that was Swedish for I travel with Rick Steves. 
Hej, jag är Åsa och jag är från Sverige och jag reser med Rick Steves. I Sverige så är vi alla individer men vi lever tillsammans. In Sweden we are all individuals but we live together. Tack så mycket. Tack så mycket. <laughs> It started out as an online collection of bizarre and obscure places and things all around the world. Now, Atlas Obscura is also a series of best-selling books and a growing community of people whose curiosity about the world sparks opportunities to explore its mysteries and its surprises. To take us inside the world of Atlas Obscura, we're joined now by its creative director and co-founder, Dylan Thuris. Dylan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. For people who don't know Atlas Obscura, give us the backstory. What prompted you and your friends to start this, and when and where did that happen? Yeah, so it's been a project we've been working on for some time now. It started back in 2009. Uh, I was actually moving abroad for a while. I was I was moving to, to Budapest. And my friend Josh and I, we'd worked on another project together, and we started talking about travel. He'd spent months traveling around the U.S. going to sort of small museums and outsider art projects. And we just sort of were lamenting the fact that there wasn't a guidebook for the kinds of travel that we really like to do. And then we sort of said, oh, what if what would it be like if we made that that place? And and it really didn't start out, you know, there was no business plan. We basically just said, okay, what would it take to build this? And while I was living in Hungary, I traveled around, I wrote about places that I saw there, and sort of slowly seeded about the first 300, 400 entries into the website. And then we launched and and invited other people to come and suggest the places that they thought were incredible wonders, but that people didn't necessarily know about. So it's sort of a, a chance for people to celebrate places that they think are special but but overlooked. You mentioned it in your book. It, it's kind of like the old Wunderkammer, the cabinet of curiosities that kings and powerful people did centuries ago. Did, did you realize that there's that sort of connection and that continuity? Definitely. I mean, I think uh, Josh and I, I, well, first off, in the Atlas, we list those kinds of wunderkammers, the ones that still exist, so you can go visit them. Uh, but I think we wanted to do a sort of a, an update on that idea, whereas whereas in the past it was sort of wunderkammer. They're kind of the proto-museum, you know, collecting every odd thing that, you know, natural philosophers could find and showing them to people. And we sort of felt like, well, we, the Internet, all of us kind of live in one giant wunderkammer together now, and we can share the wonders both near and far. And I think part of what is important for us about Atlas Obscura is the idea that wherever you're looking, the weird things in the world are both, you know, a block from you and a thousand miles away from you, wherever you are. And that's kind of the nature of what makes Atlas work is that I think uh, everything, things that seem normal to one person are profoundly interesting to another. You know, that's, that's, sort, of, that's, that's so, sort of the idea. That's so basic and it is so um, underappreciated. I mean, Yeah. Things that seem normal. I was hiking in my uncle in Norway's backyard and I came upon a Viking burial ground. And it was not even a <laughs> historical monument. It's just a bunch of stones that for a thousand years have cut through the turf in the shape of a Viking ship. And I can imagine at twilight a burial ceremony there, you know, a thousand years ago with Vikings. Or you can find your own private Stonehenge. There's hundreds of them around England. That's Or right. in, in, in Atlas Obscura, you've got this wonderful bit about the communist convention center that's that's like perched up on a ridge high in Bulgaria, just rotting away. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that place. That is amazing. Bazludza is yeah. incredible and and I think actually may end up being saved because of some of the international attention to it. So, yeah, it, it was 
one of a number of, of what were called spominics, uh, which were these really pretty incredible, daring, gigantic sculptural art pieces made across the sort of Soviet reach. So Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, all, all over Russia, um, each one of them. And they have these very um, distinct looks, sort of almost like alien. But the one that you mentioned, Bazludza, quite literally looks like a giant UFO, a, a, a it's city amazing. block-sized UFO. You drive yeah. up this um, endless little winding switchbacks to the top of this mountain, and then it looks like it was poured in concrete in yeah. the 1970s, which I think it was, and you've got marks and angles and linen that is rotting away on the ceiling, and, and we had to crawl through something, and it was just like covered with, with insulation that had fallen down and sun rays cutting through the broken roof, and and I thought, this has got to be uh, appreciated. And it's uh, apparently you've heard that they're going to fix it up because I think it's a quirky site that needs to be saved. Yeah, luckily, uh, the sort of good part of this attention is that previously there was really no effort to stabilize or save the location, hmm. mostly because it was associated with communism. Right. And in Bulgaria, that sort of is a period of history that's not particularly f- fondly remembered. And so... But all the interest, I think, from outsiders has alerted people to realize, oh, this has some real value. And so, yeah. And that's one thing that Atlas Obscura can celebrate. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuris. He's from Atlas Obscura, and he's coming to us from his home in New York's Hudson River Valley. And Dylan is the co-author of the Atlas Obscura books, including their latest one, which is called Gastro Obscura. It's a food adventures guide. Their website is atlasobscura.com. Now, um, I, I like the thought that, that you write in your book, Dylan, that when you're talking to your readers, you are all co-authors. Uh, talk about the Atlas Obscura community and, and how that uh, helps you out in your work. Yeah, so from from day one of starting the website back in 2009, you could submit a location. You know, there was always sort of an editorial pass-through, so we would look at it and fact-check it and, and try and, you know, find usable photos and that kind of thing. But but basically, we knew from the start, if the whole project was just Josh and I putting in what we knew, we would come to an end pretty soon. And I think the way you find great wonders is because a local or someone who happened to stumble upon it says, hey, you know, if you're in this area, you should really check out Buzludza, or yeah. you should go to this little museum because that's, yeah, or, or, that's the or way you, you can, find things. Like I was thumbing through the book and it's so much fun to read because it's little tiny. It's just like little bits here and there. So you can have so much fun just bouncing around. And I came to Gallup's Pottery Shop in Avanos in Turkey. And I remember for years we took our tour groups there and everybody, he was kind of a Romeo in Turkey and uh, <laughs> girls that visited would snip off a bit of their hair and he would lift them up and they would pin it to the ceiling and today, it is a museum of human hair. His whole pottery shop is mossy on the ceiling with the hair from tourists who have visited from all over the world. And once a year, I understand, he picks uh, randomly somebody's hair, and they get a one-week tour on a donkey with Gallup the potter. I don't know if people actually <laughs> take him up on that. I don't know if you know about that. But yeah, uh, I don't I, know. <laughs> That's new to me. That sounds great. I found the entry in Atlas Obscura, and I thought, that is really obscura. And it must have been the work of somebody who sent you an email. And I could have done it. I could have sent it to you had I regularly said, that's fun. 
for all I know, it was someone who went on one of your trips and then said, hey, this is a special spot. I mean, it's funny because it sort of has a mirror in Independence, Missouri. I I hope it's still up and operating. There was something called Lila's Hair Museum who she collected Victorian hair art. So there was a period of time where Victorians got very into braiding hair into these elaborate wreaths Ah. and shapes. And so these are the little kinds of places that you, you stumble upon. Now, there's a fine line between a freak show and something that's in that's quirky but not in bad taste. And you've been doing this for quite a while, and standards change, you know, and you could do something that was just kind of quirky 10, 20 years ago that could be considered, mm, you don't do that now. Uh, have you ever had to reconsider anything in your book that came off like celebrating a freak show, or, or has that been an issue at all? We we started out very specifically trying to not do some of the kind of things that a Ripley's Believe It or Not or even a right. Guinness Book of World Records kind of did because we our, our premise was basically like I'm, I'm from the Midwest and every year I'd go to the Minnesota State Fair and it never occurred to me that the butter carving competition or, or uh, event where someone sculpts 12 busts of, of the local county beauty queens in butter was particularly unusual. <laughs> but I think it turns out I brought people and they said, you know, oh, this yeah. really is an odd, uh, an odd experience. And well, I that's thought, interesting. I guess it if, is. if you grow up with it, maybe it's just normal. But it's kind of like if you grow up in Hungary, you would not be um, bedazzled by human bones. It's just they stack bones over there. I mean, we were talking about you got started in Hungary. Kutnohora has this bone something, bone house that, and they have a chandelier made with every single human bone. Every well, that that's its sedlets in Czech in the Czech Republic or Czechia. Oh, oh you're right. That's in Czech yeah, Republic. Yeah, that's right. But it's not far. It's and and the area generally does have a lot more bones than <laughs> than but, the Americans are used to, at least. But, but there is a ghoulishness that is um, sure. kind of appealing to a lot of people. And you've got well, let's talk about human bones. Um, yeah, uh, sure. I, I noticed you had this amazing cemetery in Naples, Fontenelle. Yes. This is where people come to, like, bring kind of wishes to the dead, and then their their be, hope is is you, that you, they'll come true, like they're, that there's a kind of a relationship with with all of the skulls and bones in there. Am you I, develop, is that right? Yes, you, you adopt a skull, and yes, then this skull yes, kind right. of advocates for you in the afterlife. And I love that idea. This is an amazing site, and it's in an amazing neighborhood, but also you have a cemetery in your book uh, from Romania, which is... Kind of a happy cemetery. Do you remember that one? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that was a (laughs) – so this is a small town in Romania. And they developed this practice of painting the – there was sort of a town grave painter. They'd be these wooden grave markers. And they would have kind of the person's life story on them, including how they died. And they'd often depict – uh, kind of the the moment of death, so there'd be a you know a car crash or a so, but they were sort of playful and humorous and fun and and um, yeah. And the the guy who did most of those paintings passed away, was buried in the cemetery, had his own grave marker made by his apprentice, who now does that same work. And so it's yeah, a it's, jo- it's a joyful. I've been to a lot of cemeteries. It's funny and fun I'm, and yeah. I just thought it's very stimulating to have something a little different in something that we're raised might be one way or another. 
Americans are the odd ones out in, in, in their, their discomfort with death. Most other cultures in the world have a much more comfortable relationship with death. So I think we're the odd ones. I don't think I've ever seen a dead body in, in, in my world. Um, yeah. You know, it's just not part of our culture. Um, but when you go to a lot of cultures, you see dead bodies embalmed and behind glass. Yeah. I mean, think of some of the embalmed bodies that, that might be in your book. What, what are some of the examples of that? Well, we have a whole kind of area of uh, communist mummies. This odd thing happened, which was at the end of, of various, you know, autocratic leaders' time, it, it started with, with Lenin, uh, and they were embalmed, even though it wasn't necessarily actually any of their wishes. N- none of these leaders actually particularly wanted to be embalmed. Huh. But right. there was a kind of a desire to preserve this kind of almost, you know, godlike figure yeah. and continue sort of that relationship. And so... There's about 10 different kind of mummified uh, Bulgaria had a little Bulgarian Lenin named Georgi Dimitrov. And that That's was a right. big deal in, in Sofia. And uh, so much in this Atlas Obscura, it, it opens things up. Dylan Thuris from Atlas Obscura is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore some of the curious places they feature on their website at atlasobscura.com and in their encyclopedic books, including Gastro Obscura and the Atlas Obscura Explorer's Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. By the way, since we recorded our interview with Dylan, we checked on the Hare Antiquities Museum in Independence, Missouri, that we talked about a few minutes ago. Unfortunately, they do appear to have permanently closed. But if you're really looking for hair in Northern Europe, there's an exhibit of Victorian-era hair objects on display. That's in Denmark at the Bangsbo Museum in Frederikshaven. You've got a new book now that is Gastro Obscura. That's right. Uh, tell us uh, an example of what we might find uh, as far as edible memories go in our travels. Oh, there's so there's so many. Uh, one that I've always found particularly enchanting is something called the Miracle Berry, uh, which is originally from Africa and got sort of popular in Japan and was made into kind of almost like a candy or a lozenge. And it does something very interesting, was it changes your taste buds. So after you eat this Miracle Berry or, or eat this lozenge, your whole – a lemon will taste incredibly sweet. Uh, a, a pickle has a kind of candy-like uh, flavor to it. And so it's it's – you know, people – gather parties together to sort of have, you know, what they call flavor tripping uh, events huh. uh, just to just to basically, yeah, have a meal that tastes very different once you've once you've tried. So one there's of these a cultural berries. approach to tasting and food that we wouldn't have in our culture. You've also got Atlas Obscure for kids. How is that different from your basic Atlas Obscure book? Sure. We, we uh, call that the Explorer's Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. And it is uh, a big illustrated book. So we decided to use illustration because we thought in some ways illustrations can capture the magic of a place even more than a photograph can. And Mm. the book goes around the world. Each two-page spread has two different places, but we connect uh, the, the spreads through a common theme. So you might be at the last Incan bridge uh, in Peru, this incredible bridge woven from grass done in the same way that the Incans did it. And then you turn the page and you're in the north of India at one of the living root bridges, which are grown from the roots of of two ficus elastica trees. And so that's sort of in this way, you get to kind of go from theme to theme, from place to place and explore some of the most incredible, fascinating, unusual spots around the world. And so that was a really fun book to work on. You know, Dylan, with the tragic news recently of uh, the Taliban um, overthrowing the government and taking Afghanistan, 
I'm reminded that there was a cultural treasure, these giant Buddhas that go back to the 6th century A.D. Bamayan that were destroyed. Yeah. Uh, when you make a new edition, do you find that some of the places that you've really enjoyed and loved having in the book, do you have to update it? And are there some of the places no longer in existence? Yeah, we have a whole, it's a bummer, but we have a whole section called Lost Wonders, which is, is dedicated mm. to the places that are no more. And it, you know, it's it can be all kinds of stuff. It can be like what, what you're talking about, you know, the, the destruction due to warfare or Sometimes it's just, you know, misuse, basically, or sometimes it all, you know, small museums close, outsider art projects get destroyed when they're when their creator uh, passes away. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, it's definitely a part of this job. And with COVID, I'm I'm really concerned that some of my favorite little museums, museums that are in your book, I believe, uh, the, yeah. the the Museum of Fluorescence in Amsterdam and the, the Third Man Museum in, in Vienna and wonderful uh, works, labors of love by just a mom and pop. How do they survive? How do they stay going? So you do have to keep things uh, up to date when you make a new edition. Uh, we're out of time, Dylan, but uh, let's finish with some good news. With the latest edition of Atlas Obscura, what made you happiest to be able to add to the book? Oh, that is a really good question. Here, I'll give you a little piece of, of news that uh, it's in the book, but this piece of news is not in the book yet because it's brand new. But So we talk about something in the book called the Milky Seas. It was a region off the Horn of Africa where a bioluminescent patch the size of Connecticut was basically spotted via via satellite. And, and no one's ever actually been to one of them, except for sailors who sort of come across them accidentally and then reported them. No scientists have been able to actually see this in action uh, for real. But uh, there was a paper that just got put out that basically said, due to the new kinds of satellite sensors, they think they'll be able to identify these giant bioluminescent blooms in real time and dispatch researchers to go and and take samples. And they don't really even understand how this is possible. It's on a scale that's a little bit confusing uh, to the scientists who work in bioluminescence. Ah, Uh, So it's kind of a beautiful, these giant blooms of, of glowing ocean and they're not they're not toxic they're not bad they're they're fine they're part of the natural uh, occurrence they've been reported for hundreds of well, years they're yeah it's just a nice thing to think about but maybe they could call nick in amsterdam who runs the museum of fluorescent yeah. <laughs> fluorescent <laughs> things and yeah. he could get a little take on it hey dylan thank you so much for um finding obscure places and putting them on all of our atlases so we are more appreciative of our amazing world best wishes with your work dylan thank you rick i appreciate that Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Read what Rick's been thinking about lately on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find out more about our guests each week on our website at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.